0: This morning we continue our study in the book of Revelation. We pick up where we left off and so here from God's Holy Word, Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice... Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven, or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and we praise you for that lamb that we see in the scripture this morning. We praise you for that lamb who was slain for us and for our sins. We praise you that that same lamb is also a lion who is reigning over all of creation, over everything right now, who reigns over us, who reigns over our distresses and our worries and our anxieties who reigns in a peaceful way, but also in a way where he vanquishes his enemies completely. And so, Father, we praise you uh, through and through, top to bottom, for everything that Jesus is and everything that he does. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit now, we would know him more and more today, that we would come to worship him uh, with more perfection, with more completeness. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us with this time in your word today. Fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, spring is just around the corner, and with spring comes one of my favorite smells in the whole world. I love opening up and inhaling the air from a fresh envelope of baseball tickets. When, when your tickets come in the mail, the cardboard and the ink oh it just smells so good with the promise and hope and expectation that baseball is just around the corner. It's going to be warm and it's going to be sunny and the grass is going to be green and there's going to be hot dogs on the grill and you get to smell the stale beer and hear the crack of the bat and the snap of the glove. Can I get a witness? Amen. Honestly, it's not the cardboard that actually smells that great, but it's being able to look forward to all of that, to having something great on the calendar, that, that date out there in the future where we're going to we're gonna have to go have a good time as a family. We're going to get to go do fun things as a family. It's always been important for my family to have something, even even something really small out there on the calendar, out there in the future where we go get to do something, to have something to look forward to. It, it, it takes a little bit of the edge off the hard days and the sad days to have something to look forward to. Maybe today was tough, but boy, we're, we're going to go do something fun together. And there's, there's going to be a good time uh, in a few weeks. Have you ever thought about, though, when you're planning for the future, how the future often determines the past? Let's say you meet me on the driveway on some uh, March or April uh, mid morning, and you see me going to my car, and I've got my cap and my sunglasses, I've got sunscreen, I've got a couple of tickets sticking out of my shirt pocket. My son has his glove with him, and you ask, Why do you have all that? Why, why, wh- what, what's going on here? And I say, I, Because there's a baseball game, because, because there's a game. We're going to a game. The future event the thing that hasn't happened yet caused, in many ways, me to do things to prepare for it. Uh, in, In many ways, the thing that hasn't happened yet preceded the past. Because there's a game scheduled in the future, I wanted to go. I bought tickets. I planned around it. Even though the game follows all of my preparations chronologically, the game precedes and causes all of the things I have to do to make it there. The effect determined all the causes that led up to it. I think on this just a minute, we, we typically think of the flow of history and the flow of time as a, a, a row of dominoes. You knock one over and all the rest follow. Or we think of the flow of history like a Rube Goldberg machine. You know what those are? These crazy contraptions. This thing sets off this. Did anybody uh, play the game Mousetrap when you were a kid? Anybody have that game? I don't think we ever actually learned how to play it. Did anybody ever play that game, actually? Or did you just set up the thing? You set up the contraption and, <laughs> and tried to make it work. And one time out of ten, it, it, actually, it actually worked. Um, where where uh, we, we think of the flow of history as one elaborate set of, of reactions, uh, things that make other things happen and until you get to the end. Each event precedes and causes the next event. And that's true, but that's not the entire truth. Because the past does not simply cause the future, rather often the future causes the past. I'm going to rely on somebody way brighter than I am to put it uh, better. R.J. Rushtuni in The Biblical Philosophy of History, he wrote this. The movement of time, according to the Bible, is from eternity since it is created by God and moves out of and in terms of His eternal decree. Because time is predestined and because its beginning and end are already established, time does not develop in evolutionary fashion from past to present to future. Instead, it unfolds from future to present to past. Let me try to make this a little bit more simple and, and uh, uh, clearer. See, in ages past, God desired to glorify Himself through Jesus Christ. He, he desired to redeem the world and redeem His humanity, his, his chosen people, from before the foundation of the world. He determined to send Jesus. Therefore, therefore He created Ida, uh, Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and he gave us Boaz, and he gave us Ruth, and he gave us Jesse and David, and he, and he gave us Mary and Joseph. You see, Jesus was the end, but because of Jesus in the future, he gave us all of these others, and he gave us this whole story that brought us to Jesus. And so in Revelation chapter 5, we read that Jesus is the root of David. How does that work? Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is is David's greater son. But here we read that he is the root of David. Jesus is the source of David. The reason for David's existence is his greater son, Jesus. So the effect determined the cause. The effect is Jesus. The cause would be David in that sense. The future determined the past. Jesus is both the root and the branch. He's the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And so what the book of Revelation gives us is this vision of the reality that Jesus is reigning over all creation, that Jesus is reigning over the entire cosmos, and that you and I and we and all of creation together are being drawn ahead through history to a future where that reign is seen and acknowledged by every creature. That hasn't happened yet. The whole earth has not been subdued to His reign in a way that it's obvious and real and where everyone has been perfected and sanctified and justified and we all stand holy before His. That hasn't happened yet, but that is the anchor point of the future that all events are being pulled toward. Our glorious future reigns over our present and our past the glorious future of creation reigns over creation present and past and aren't you glad that it works that way and not the other way around i am defined we are defined the church is defined by her future and not her past if my past indelibly carved my future in stone if my past determined everything ahead of me in a way that I couldn't escape it or if my past defined me in a way that I couldn't work around it or work outside of it then I'm in big trouble but God has determined our future and that defines and gives context to the past as a child of God I am defined by my future and not by my past, my future is pulling me through history as I am brought more and more conformed to the image of christ, so that 's the image, and that 's the vision we get in revelation here of this of, of Jesus enthroned and, and all of us moving toward that great future where everything is submitted to him well. We're in the book of Revelation that gives us this grand vista of heaven and heaven's activity, and it shows us what's important in heaven. Revelation shows us how things work in heaven, but we've taken a short break from it over these last several weeks. Thank you for allowing me a a couple of Sundays off to work on my certification. And uh, last week we were blessed by Pastor Wilkins, and now today, I hope you prayed for me that I can shake the rust off and then I can get back. You know, hi, I'm Dwayne, by the way. Have have we we met? You know, it it feels really weird, uh, even though it was only three weeks. But let's get back to it and remember where we were in Revelation. If you want an outline of the book of Revelation, flip open your worship bulletin. That's the outline of the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is the account of a heavenly worship service, and it follows the order of covenant renewal. The book of Revelation begins with a call to worship. As Jesus presents himself to John on the Lord's day, Jesus presents himself to John on the Lord's day in all of his majesty, And John falls on his face. And so then we go from a call to worship to a cleansing section of the book of Revelation. We deal with sins. We deal with the sins of the churches. Uh, Jesus will lift John up and he's going to go to his churches and he's going to deal with their, their sins and he's going to correct them and call them to repentance. And that is chapters two and three where he addresses the churches. Now that our sins have been dealt with, well, it's time to go up. It's time to lift our hearts up to the Lord and to ascend into the heavenly sanctuary to hear God speak to us and to commune with him, to, to, uh, to have a sweet covenant fellowship with him. Uh, so John ascends and that ascension is accompanied by singing, the singing of angels and creatures and the elders around the throne. Now here in chapter five, this is the, we're in the part of the liturgy where it's time to open up the book and read it. Well, that's what happens in the middle of Christian worship as well. We are called to worship, we confess our sins, we're cleansed, and now it's time to open up the book and read it. And that's what takes up the most time, typically, in worship. It's, especially, uh, we're not doing uh, sermonettes, typically. We're not doing, I, I say sermonettes for Christianettes. If you, want, if you want to stay little, you get little sermons, but we want to grow up big, so we have medium-sized sermons. We. We don't get crazy here, right? I'm not going to go an hour unless uh, we need to. But uh, the time where we open up the word and we read it and we think on it, that's the the biggest section of, of worship. The main body then of the book of Revelation is the peeling off of the seven seals of the book and proclaiming the contents of that book with trumpets. That takes up most of the book of Revelation. After we hear the word read and we hear it spoken, it's time to memorialize the covenant, to participate in the sacramental sealing. And so in worship, we eat at the Lord's table. But remember, um, it cuts both ways, that you either eat blessing or you eat judgment. And in Revelation, the sacramental sealing cuts both ways as well. There is judgment on unbelief, and there is blessing on the faithful who come to the marriage supper of the Lamb and then lastly we have provision for the future we're blessed and sent out in revelation this happens with jesus on a white horse going out to make war against his enemies and we have a picture of the heavenly jerusalem the church that's the outline of of revelation a call to worship there's this cleansing section Uh, John is called up. The book is opened and read, and all of the judgments of the book and the blessings of the book are poured out on the earth. There is a sacramental ceiling with the damned sent to judgment and with uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then there is provision. There is provision for the future at the very end. There is a blessing and a sending out. So then, um, that, one, more, one more item for review, uh, because it's been a few weeks since we've looked at revelation. The first verse of this book says this revelation was signified by the angel to John. And that means that this book is communicated in the language of signs. That's, that's what it means to be signified. It is communicated in the language of symbol. So that when we read the book of Revelation, we're always looking at other sections of scripture, as we've done, always looking at other sections of scripture for interpretations of the things that we read and and that we understand. We're being taught um, heavenly things, things that our minds can only barely grasp, but we're being taught them through the language of symbol already established in the Bible. The Bible gives us this lexicon of symbols that now we apply to Revelation. Chapter 4, where we were last time, gives us this introduction to heaven's worship. John ascends into heaven's courtroom, and the chapter break ended on a hymn. It ended on a song. Verse 11 of chapter 4, the uh, elders fall down and sing, "'You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist.'" and were created. So they draw our attention in worship to the one who is sitting on the throne, and in chapter 5 verse 1, we we look at him. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. You look to the right hand of the father and what do you expect to see there? You look to the right hand of the father, you expect to see Jesus. But here, John looks to the right hand of the Father, and he doesn't see Jesus; he sees a book. There's a book there in the right hand of the Father, open. Uh, well, it's it's I'm sorry, it's it's sealed. It's not open. It's sealed. Where is Jesus? Well, he's been talking to John. John, uh, Jesus has been walking among the candlesticks, inspecting the churches. When when John sees uh, the scroll, understand, um, I'm going to call it a book because it is a book, but uh, all books in John's time would have been scrolls. He doesn't see a codex like we're used to. We're, for, from about the year 300 forward, we've bound pages and we've sewn them together and, or we've glued them together in a codex. This is a codex. These are all the books in our day, except for electronic books, are, are codexes. In the uh, ancient world, up until about the year 300, of course, they had these long sheets of papyrus uh, attached together, and they were he- uh, jo- joined together, and then rolled up with these two wooden rollers. And the text on the page was written in columns, and so as you read read the book, you would scroll, literally scroll through the through the text as you read it. So this scroll that is in the hand of the father is written all over on the inside and on the outside. Paper is expensive. And if you have a lot to say, you write on both sides of the scroll. If you ever see a document, if you ever see a book in the ancient world that's written on both sides, you know that author has a lot to say. He's not going to just say it in a few short sentences. And so the scroll that's written on the inside and the outside stands out as the work of someone who is abounding with words. Words are spilling out, filling up the front and back of the page. It's sealed with seven seals. When a scroll is finished, especially if it's a legal document or if it's some kind of official communication It's fastened with threads, and the threads are then sealed with hot wax at the knots of the threads. Uh, The the hot wax was poured onto the knot, and then a scroll or a metal cylinder was rolled over it so that the uh, cylinder presses it flat, and often the cylinder was etched with an inscription or with a picture. And you can look this up and see these neat uh, cylinders, the, the signet. Um, remember, Judah had a signet or on a cord around his neck. We see signets and that's your identity, that's your signature. Uh, so it's either a picture or, a, or an inscription. And when you roll it over the wax, it's, it's not just a little dot of wax, it could be as big as, your, as big as your palm. When you roll that out and you see the picture there uh, or the inscription rolled out over the knot that holds it together, that seals it. This book has not just one seal, but seven seals. And many of the commentators will tell you that um, for a document to have seven seals, typically in the ancient world, that meant that it was a last will and testament. So you uh, wrote your last will in front of seven witnesses. And then once you passed away, those seven witnesses or their legal representatives would show up. And unless all seven are there... Um, you can't open the you can't open the document. You can't pop the seals open on that. You have to have the seven or their legal representative. So you bring out a will and testament, and you've got to ask, well, who is worthy to open the seals? Who who has the standing? Who has the legal status to open the seals? And once everyone who is is worthy is there, then you can start opening it. Well, over the next several chapters, we're going to see these seals untied, popped open one by one, and with each seal that's opened, there is judgment. And it might be that the pictures that are, this is just my imagination, but just think a minute, uh, if the seals uh, that are, are pressed into, uh, the, the the picture that is pressed into the seal are the actual signs that we see, so that the first the first seal looks like a white horse, and the second seal looks like a red horse, and the third one is a black, and the fourth one is a pale, and so on. Um, as, just uh, something that, that might have been uh, a feature of that. But, but the fact that this book is all sealed up with seven seals means that someone worthy to open the book is going to have to come along and open it up and read it to us. You don't have the authority to go looking through somebody's mail. You don't have the authority to, to rip open somebody's envelope when it's not addressed to you. And uh, you don't have the authority to go opening up official seals on a document like this. So the question is, who can open this book? Verse 2, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. This book is formidable. This book, somebody knows what's in there. Somebody knows what, what this stands for. They They are... Terrified by the contents of this book. But the words of the angel come across as a challenge. Is there anybody worthy? Does anyone have the standing or the status or the authority or the strength to open this book? And it doesn't look like anybody's up to the task. Not even this strong angel with a loud voice. He's not going to open it. He doesn't have the standing or the authority. Nobody can even look at it, much less open it. Now, the question is what is this book? that's causing such a stir? Is it the New Testament? Is it the book of the new covenant? Is it the Lamb's book of life? Is it the law fulfilled in Jesus? It is, is it the record of the future? Is it divorce papers from Yahweh to old covenant Israel? Is it a record of all human sin? What is it? Well, this isn't the first time in the scriptures we've seen a king holding a book. Back in Deuteronomy, We've looked at this several times in the past. When, when Moses is completing the Pentateuch, there was a prescription for Israel's king when he was ordained, uh, when when he was um, crowned king, that he his first job, his first task was to take a copy of the law and sit down and copy it word by word, letter by letter. That's what the king was supposed to do, to copy it out word by word and then to read it, read his own copy all the days of his life. That, if you can imagine, could could you copy Genesis through Deuteronomy by hand? Would you? How long would that take you? Do you think if you did that, you would have more familiarity with the books of the Pentateuch? Do you think maybe you would uh, slow down and read every single word? It would it would force you to slowly and carefully, word by word, uh, read through every every verse, every precept of God's law. And, and then there were specific seasons and specific times, like every, uh, every seventh uh, feast of tabernacle. The word, the law, was to be read publicly in front of everyone as the whole congregation. And it's specified, men and women, children, the elderly, everybody are to come out and hear the law read in front of them as the whole congregation of Israel gathers to hear God's word. And that's the prescription. That's what's going to keep Israel from idolatry. That's what's going to preserve Israel is that God's word is constantly being read out across the land and that the hills echo with the word of God. That's what's going to to preserve us. Of course, not every king obeys that commandment. Not every king copies out the law letter by letter and gets himself his own copy for him to read. And so for a time in the days of the kings, God's law was completely forgotten. And as a result, the land was overrun by paganism, by idolatry, by the occult. And then one day a priest named Hilkiah is kind of cleaning up around the uh, the temple grounds and he goes in a back room, he goes in a closet where there's mops and buckets and old you know, decorations and all kinds of things. And he finds a book, he finds a scroll and he says, what's this? And he blows dust off of it and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He says, well, that's interesting. Maybe we should read this. Maybe we should look into this. So Hilkiah reads it and he's blown away and he takes it to the king, the young king, Josiah. Josiah reads it and he tears his garment and he weeps before God. And he begins uh, this this. Uh, this this mission to cleanse Israel of her idolatry, cleanse Judah of her idolatry. That he reads the whole book in the presence of the congregation of Israel, and then he declares warfare on the idolatry of the land. Back in Second uh, Kings chapter twenty-two and twenty-three, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's so uh, it's so thrilling when this king goes on a tirade, he goes on the war path against idolatry and the occult. In uh, um, uh, 2 Kings 23, um, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of Yahweh. And then, and then the rest of the chapter is a list of all the things he did. He, uh, he, he took the Baal and the Asherah and burned them outside of Jerusalem. He took the wooden image from the house of Yahweh and ground it to ashes. In verse 7, he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of Yahweh. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and in def. Defiled the high places. He deliberately defiled the idolatrous places. Uh, he broke down the high places. He defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the sun. He burned the chariots of the sun with fire. He pulverized the altars which Manasseh had made. In verse 14, he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. I, I just love the word pulverize. And I, lo- I love that that word is in the Bible. Uh, that he broke down the, the high places and he crushed the idols to power. and he he burned the wooden image. And and then in verse 25, it says, Now before him, there was no king like him. Even David. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. That's King Josiah. And if it says that about that, I want to know a little bit more about that king. You can read about him in those chapters in 2 Kings. Well, Here we have uh, the same thing about to happen in the book of Revelation. Here is a king with a book, and it's about to be opened, and it's about to be read, and out of this book are going to come judgments on unbelief. Idolatry is about to be pulverized. Unbelief is about to be ground to powder. Uh, This book is the book of God's law, which holds forth his standards, his perfections, his holiness. It's the book that Moses said the king is supposed to copy out letter by letter and read to us. Did Jesus in his life copy out the law letter by letter and live it in front of us? Did he obey every jot and tittle? Did Jesus know every jot and tittle, every period and question mark of, of the law? Did Jesus do that for us? Absolutely. This is the book that's about to unleash judgment on the land against all unbelief and idolatry. It's the same book containing all the things that were revealed to the prophet Daniel. But God told Daniel, remember to write everything down, but seal the book until the time of the end. And God told Daniel, those seals won't be broken until God says it's time. Well, this book needs to be read but there's no one worthy to open it. So John weeps, verse four. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. John weeps because he knows that the world needs to be set right. And the only way that that's gonna happen is if this book is opened and read. But John is comforted by one of the elders. He says, uh, "Don't don't cry, don't cry, John. There, there's one who can open it. We all know who's going to open this book. That's not a secret. We all know who's going to do it. It's the Lion <laughs> of the Tribe of Judah." And it transitions John's weeping to joy because this lion has prevailed. How has he overcome? How has he prevailed? Why is he worthy? What is it about him that allows him to ascend to this throne? Take this book, take up his power and rule by his submitting and his suffering. And we see this because the the elder says to John, behold the lion. And John looks and he doesn't see a lion. What does he see? He sees a lamb. Verse six, and I looked And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Again, this is symbolic language. That's why I always want to impress upon you. These are the things that are sent and signified by the angel to John. So when you think of Jesus sitting on his throne in heaven, you're not praying to a lion. You're not praying to a literal sheep. This is descriptive language. When you say, wow, you're being a pig, you don't mean you've got a, you know, funny nose and a twirly tail. That's not what you're saying, right? You're saying you're acting like that. You're acting like a pig. We say, we say that Jesus is is like a lion. He's like a lamb. And then we're to ask, how is he like a lamb? Well, this here, this lamb is slain So we aren't uh, being directed to think about his mildness or his sweetness, but this is a lamb slain. This is directing us to his sacrificial work. And pressing it further, this isn't even a normal lamb. This lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Horns, in biblical language, are symbolic of strength and power. Anything that extends outward from the body, anything that radiates out, is Glory. The horns of an ox are his glory. The the antlers of a buck are his glory. Uh, Paul says uh, that a woman's hair is her her glory. Uh, So this lamb has sevenfold glory. He has sevenfold radiance. Horns were also used to communicate to armies and to call the congregation to worship. And worship and warfare all gets folded together in, when, when Israel marches around the walls of Jericho. And guess how many horns Israel had when they marched around the walls of Jericho? They had seven. And there are seven horns on this, on, this, uh, on this lamb. Seven ram's horns they had um, when they marched around Jericho. He has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Nothing escapes his gaze. The Lord continually assesses the world. He continually judges the world. He approves of what he has created with uh, with his all-seeing eyes. Seven times in the creation account, we're told that God saw it was good. Seven times in the letters to the seven churches, Jesus says, I see, I know. I discern your works. Jesus sees everything, and he judges everything perfectly. So what do you think you know that he doesn't know? What do you think you do that he doesn't see? What do you think you think that he doesn't know about? What part of you and what part of your life do you think you have well hidden from him that he doesn't know about? You see, when it comes to our image and our reputation and our view of ourselves, we are far more worried about what other people think than about what God sees, right? We're worried about the things that people think, and honestly, they're not really thinking about you as much as you think they're thinking about you. But we're always really concerned about what people think and not what about God actually actually sees. We're far more concerned about keeping up an image that we fabricated that we could hold together for short periods of time We're far more worried and concerned about that than we are about the reality that God sees and knows the secret counsel of our hearts. He knows where our minds wander. He knows the dark lusts and hatreds that we harbor. But we are far less concerned about that than we are about what someone else thinks about us who does not wield any real power over us. And even when we do acknowledge that he sees everything, we're apt to speak of it very casually. Often when someone is acting in clear violation of God's word, they justify it. They say, well, um, God is leading me, and the Lord knows my heart. As if that's, that's the end of the conversation. The Lord knows my heart. As, as if that's a safe thing, that the Lord knows my heart. <laughs> As if that's not something that would cause us to fall flat out in repentance. As if his judgment is somehow less severe, less fearsome than a human's. As if you've got nothing to worry about if God knows your heart. You've got nothing to worry about. That's fine. God knows your heart. Now to be clear, he does know your heart. And he knows it better than you do. He knows all the ways your hearts deceive you. But it doesn't deceive him. It never deceives him. He can see right through the lies you tell yourself and the justifications that you're satisfied with when it comes to your sin. We convince ourselves it's okay because this. And this thing happened and I'm backed into a corner and I can't do this because of that person and what they've done to me. And so this is the only thing I can do. And I've got it all worked out. I've got it. You don't need to look at this. I got it. I got it covered. I got it. It's fine. Well, no. He is the lamb slain and he sees with all seeing eyes. He sees every sin that he died for. And the only way to manage those things is not to try to hide it. That's silly. Not to try to justify it. That's impossible. Not to try to cover it up. You can't do it. You can't cover it up. And not to ignore it because it's not going to go away on its own. But to expose it to the seven all-seeing eyes of the Lamb who was slain. And for Him to forgive you for it, which He is willing and ready and eager to do. There is no other way before a God who sees everything. Now, if your God is an idol, if your God is a block of wood, you put a tablecloth over him and it's fine. You do whatever you want to do. Get away with whatever you want to get away with. But that's not the God of the Bible. And that's not the God of creation. He sees and knows everything. The lamb who is slain, who stands in the midst of the elders, is the only one who's worthy to open the book of God's law because he's the only one who's obeyed it. He's the only one who who deserves to come up here and open it up. This book that contains the verdict on unbelieving, idolatrous mankind. So let's pick up in verse 7. "...and he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne." Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. When Jesus takes uh, his steps up and ascends up to his father's right hand, he takes the book and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down at once in praise. They all fall down together. It looks choreographed. Just like when we all kneel together on the Lord's Day. It all looks choreographed. We all eat bread together. We all drink wine together. Yeah, it's choreographed. It's corporate. They're used to doing this. They've got the dance steps down. They do this together. They each have a harp or a lyre. They have stringed musical instruments. There's guitars in heaven. I don't know if that sits well with you or not, but but there's stringed instruments in heaven, like the stringed instruments that David appointed to be used by the musicians at the temple. If we have instruments in heaven... And we want earthly worship to reflect heavenly worship. We have to have instruments in earthly worship. And they have bowls of incense full of the prayers of the saints, which they bring before God as they sing a new song. What is this new song and what's the occasion for it? Well, since creation, the morning stars have sung together. The angels have been praising God for creating the world. That's been the hymn of heaven. Uh, praising God for creation. We get two of those creation songs in chapter four. Worthy are you, O Lord, because you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. That's the song that they've been singing, a song of creation. They've praised him for that, but now they get to praise him for something new. They praise him for not only the creation of the world, but the redemption of the world. So heaven's choirs learn a new song. At last, someone is worthy to take the book and open its seals. You are worthy for you were slain. Again, worthiness, privilege, opportunity, power is tied to his sacrifice. And they sing, you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Like the blood that was over the doors of the Israelites that delivered them from the angel of death, that delivered them from slavery in Egypt and made them a new kingdom of priests. His blood means deliverance. The blood of the lamb means salvation, rescue into a new life, rescue into a new realm, just like Israel in the Exodus. They have been purchased by his blood, so now they belong to him. And those who have been purchased come from every tribe and tongue, every people and nation to make up this new kingdom of priests. So now the kingdom is not exclusively a Jewish kingdom, but one made up of all the families of the earth. That's what they sing about in the first hymn, But now we add more because their song prompts the myriads of myriads, the thousands of thousands of angels to join in the song. It's a call and response. It's antiphonal, the way that we sing the Psalms back and forth. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Add it up. You don't have enough paper to add it up saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Notice that they sing with a loud voice. That's how the congregation of God is supposed to sing. That's how the congregation of God responds to him. We don't mumble and we don't murmur. It's, It's not more reverent to whisper. A mighty fortress. Is our God. Doesn't that make you want to just charge the gates of hell? You know, when you hear somebody whisper, it's not more reverent to whisper. They're singing with a loud voice. What does it sound like when the swarm of angels roars out this praise? it's got to be ear melting. It's got to cause you to shake. Notice it's a swarm of angels that are participating in the worship around God's throne. Because we're Americans, we have this intensely individualized personal way of thinking about our connection to God. Rather than thinking in both individual and covenantal terms, we think in strictly individual terms. And we think of ourselves just worshiping privately with Jesus. We talk about our personal relationship to Jesus, our private relationship devotion, but the Bible talks about both things. There's both a personal and a corporate dimension. And, And the Bible constantly reminds us of the corporate dimension of our relationship to God so that when we pray and when we worship, we're joining in and stirring up a whole lot of heavenly activity full of angels and elders and creatures so that you can never be alone in worship and you can't be left alone in heaven's business. Total solitude is reserved for hell, but as long as you 're a Christian and as long as you 've got the Holy Spirit uh, residing in you, as long as you 're in union with Christ, you have a whole lot of people surrounding you when you sing and when you worship. God likes swarms, he fills the air with swarms of birds, he fills the oceans with swarms and schools of fish. And when he redeems, he redeems peoples and tongues and families and nations. He loves swarms. There's a whole cloud or swarm of worshipers surrounding the throne who give sevenfold praise to the lamb and, all, uh, and for all that he possesses. And what's wonderful about these attributes that he holds, uh, this power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory, and blessing seven things that he holds. What's wonderful about these is that he doesn't hoard them. He invites us to participate in them and possess them too. He has all these things. And so are you worried about what's going to happen in the world? You're kind of, you're kind of worried and you feel powerless in the face of all kinds of things that you could fall victim to that are outside of your control. Well, Jesus has the power and you have union with Jesus. So what do you have? You have power. You wish that you had the resources and the provision and the things that other people have and you're always worried about money. You're worried about money? Well, stop because Jesus has the riches and you're in union with Jesus. You don't understand what's going on around you, the way things are working and why certain things are happening. That's okay because Jesus has the wisdom and you're in union with Jesus. Do you feel weak? He has the strength. Are you being mistreated or disrespected or dishonored? Well, he has the honor. You think there's no glory in what you do every day and you're just muddling through. Well, don't worry about that because Jesus has the glory and you're united to him. You don't feel like you're getting all the good things that are coming to you. Well, don't be anxious because Jesus is the blessed one and you are united to him. Jesus has all of it. Jesus has all of the power and all of the riches and all of the wisdom and all of the strength and all of the honor and all of the glory and all of the blessing. What exists in the entire cosmos that you want or need that's not in that list? What is there? Jesus has it and you're in union with him and never once in my life has he ever let me down when I've trusted in him for anything, for anything. He has never one time let me down. Jesus has everything I need. And in union with him, I have all that he possesses. That's the testimony of the angels. That's what they sing about. And we can trust that they know what they're talking about because God put the angels in charge of the earth and they can say with authority, yeah, yeah, Jesus has all the resources. I mean, we've been everywhere. And Jesus is the one who has all the power. And that sparks another song. We're going to end with this last song. Another response from every creature in the cosmos. Verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. When we hear the phrase forever and ever, we think it's something like the end of a fairy tale where they just lived happily ever after and nothing more of consequence ever really happens, and time just rolls on in kind of a bland, blah, you know, nothing, nothing goes on. But that's not exactly what's being said here. The translation of forever and ever, another translation is age after age, or era after era, and it's an acknowledgment that history has eras or stages, and there are distinct periods of human history where God is accomplishing a certain thing and he brings humanity to another stage of maturity and, and then to another stage of maturity and another era and another age as a way of presenting humanity as a, as a bride for his son. So, you know, then we got the Middle Ages. We had the ancient world and we had the Middle Ages and then we had the Renaissance. We had the Industrial Revolution. We're in the information age or whatever future historians are going to call this. And he's building us up through these stages of of maturity. He does this for your family, right? You have phases of growth and periods and epochs. You have your newlywed days. You have the baby days when all the kids are little. And then you have the teenage years. God bless you. And then you have the empty nester age. And then you have the grandbaby age, right? You, you have these ages where God brings you through these phases. And the purpose is to bring you up and mature you from age to age and to move you on to the next phase. Jesus is always moving history forward to that last day when humanity is perfected as a bride for his son. And when Jesus is reigning in a public invisible way over absolutely everything at the consummation Of the age. And so Jesus rules over every phase. We don't outgrow him. When you turn 18 and you leave home, you haven't graduated from church. You haven't graduated from Jesus. You haven't graduated from obedience. Jesus rules over every age. We come to the age of the Enlightenment. We come to the Renaissance and we're learning all kinds of things about God's creation. That doesn't mean that God is now irrelevant. Jesus rules over every age of maturity and he matures us, putting us through the paces, bringing us up and he reigns over every age forever and ever from age to age. And that is the future that we're being pulled toward that determines the present and the past that defines the present and the past. And thank God for this book that we get to see this vision of where everything is moving toward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this book and we thank you for your faithful to to us in Jesus and through Jesus. And we pray that we would live in light of all the resources that you have shown us that our savior possesses. And that we would never despair. We would never grow bitter. We'd never grow hateful or mean-spirited, but that we would rejoice in all that Jesus is for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.